listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for, gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, Show your support to Baron Fig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Ashby Monk. Dr. Monk is the executive and research director of the Stanford Global Project Center. His current research focus is on the design and governance of institutional investors with particular specialization on pension and sovereign wealth funds. Outside of Stanford, he is the co-founder and chairman of Long Game Savings. He received his doctorate in economic geography at Oxford University and holds a bachelor's in economics from Princeton University. Enjoy my conversation with Ashby Monk. Ashby, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first question we like to start out with, with the guests, is going back to 2008, the global financial crisis. Tell us uh, what you were doing professionally and what was going through your mind at the time. Yeah, I just uh, I was just in the process of finishing my doctorate at Oxford and moving into a postdoc at, at Boston College. It was pretty fitting because the you know the financial crisis served as a catalyst for a lot of really interesting innovations in in this world of investing that I study. So, you know, prior to 2008, there were almost no sovereign wealth funds. Like I can remember in 2006 or 7 as I was getting ready to plan my postdoc, I put sovereign wealth fund that name into uh, the Google machine and there were no there were no results. And then with the crisis, kind of catalyzed this, the rise of this new type of investment organization, you know, starting 2007, 2008. But I was, uh, you know, I was finishing my doctorate and moving to Boston to do, to do a postdoc on sovereign wealth funds. Interesting. That was uh, an interesting time, especially, as you said, because some of the large sovereign wealth funds, it sounds like, weren't haven't weren't really built out during that time. What was the catalyst for them kind of building out those funds at the during that time and why weren't they present uh, before that? Yeah, it's a great question. So first off, sovereign wealth funds like the, the only thing that was new around that time was the name and and the popularity. We had these types of intergenerational 
stabilization funds. We call them in this country permanent funds that mm-hmm. exist to help governments make long-term plans. Um, you can see sovereign funds as kind of being about um, managing a local government or uh, state in the context of a global environment. So the sovereign the name Sovereign Wealth Fund is less about who the sponsor is and more about a description of what it's used for. It's used for sovereignty, to maintain sovereignty in a crisis. In 2000, actually it was 1997 with the IMF stepping in to bail out a bunch of countries after that crisis, the IMF came and they kind of added all this conditionality around the loans, which was perceived by the governments at the time as a threat to their sovereignty. They've lost self-determination. They've lost control over their domestic economy. They've ceded it to the IMF in the moment of a crisis. Well, that drove a lot of governments around the world to think we would much rather um, self-insure. And so between 97 and then the crisis in 2001, 2002, you saw some of these types of entities being constructed, but it really wasn't until 2005 that that title, Sovereign Wealth Fund, was assigned to them. And it was almost like by naming them, um, we gave them life, right? And so from 2007 through till now, we have way more sovereign wealth funds than we ever had before by a factor of like five. It's almost like every month you hear another government setting up a sovereign fund. And the rationale is always very similar. You know, we want to make long-term plans um, our government is reliant on hydrocarbon revenues, but hydrocarbon revenues are volatile. So we use the sovereign fund to smooth that volatility or, you know, and there's any, many other reasons to sponsor a sovereign fund, but it ultimately emerges out of the desire to make long-term plans, um, in volatile markets and preserve sovereignty, uh, and self-determination. Interesting. And I know when I always look at the lists of the sovereign wealth funds, you have kind of the oil rich countries, as you mentioned, trying to diversify their economy and things like that. Why is Norway have such a large fund? And what's the is, is there a story behind that? Or I always wondered why theirs was so big in, in comparison to other countries that have yeah, but- the similar mineral and mining and things like that. Yeah, they have a small population and they had massive um, subsoil asset wealth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, uh, you know, it used to be called the Petroleum Fund. Now it's called the Global Pension Fund. Uh Um, But that's really just marketing and and driving legitimacy. it's, it's It's a means of creating intergenerational equity and um, not allowing these hydrocarbon revenues to kind of damage the local economy because there's this thing called Dutch disease and Dutch disease is basically, um, you know, what an environment where your currency appreciates as you're exporting hydrocarbons, which then harms all of your domestic industries. And so the more hydrocarbons you're shipping overseas, the weaker your domestic industries are in terms of their competitive advantages in a global marketplace. And so the sovereign fund and the holding of assets overseas is a way to keep the pressure off that currency. And so you see a lot of governments with hydrocarbons 
um, trying to find ways to hold that currency offshore so that they can maintain the competitiveness of domestic industries and not suffer, you know, the black curse or Dutch disease or whatever you want to call it. Um, the oil curse, um, you know, where they're losing that competitiveness, but Norway's interesting in, in part because it's big, but every fund is unique. And, you know, Norway is, um, is not kind of like a great role model for a lot of the other places that want to set up sovereign funds because it is this Northern European democracy. Um, and so they get away with doing some things that I'm not sure we would, you know, want or allow other, other geographies to get away with. Right. And you mentioned some of the permanent funds. So I know that Alaska comes to mind, um, where they pay out a certain fixed dividend to residents and do more long-term planning. Are there, are there any other examples here in the U.S., maybe on a state-by-state basis or anything oh, yeah. else like similar to that to what they do? Absolutely. So the U.S. is uh, home to the, to the most number of these types of funds. We have more... Mm-hmm you know, in quote, sovereign funds, we call them permanent funds, but Mm -hmm. more permanent funds than any other country, Mm -hmm. Uh, Wyoming, New Mexico, West Virginia, um, North Dakota, um, Texas, you know, the oldest sovereign fund in the world was the Texas Permanent School Fund. And it was in the 1850s. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't, it was based on the wealth in the Texas land, the oil money. And, um, and so that money was set aside to fund schools. It was very similar. You know, it's like, you've got all this money coming out of the ground and what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. Can't spend it all at once. So let's create a permanent school fund. That was very common. And we, we really started that practice. Yeah. And let's transition into talking a little bit about some of the work that you've done on climate change and pensions and some of the, Things that are being talked about in the media as far as ESG and other governance issues. I know up in San Francisco, the, the pension there has been kind of a long fight of a tug of war about divesting and uh, from fossil fuels and, and things like firearms and those types of types of issues. And I know this is a very broad uh, topic in, with a lot of nuance. So let's hear from you on a little bit about your research for starting with some of the climate issues. Yeah, I mean, I've been studying pension funds for 20 years. Um, they're fascinating organizations. You know, if you if you kind of lump all these big asset owner investors, pension funds, sovereign funds, endowments, foundations, family offices, and insurance companies together, you get the asset owner community. And, and those organizations inherently have a long-term time horizon. Their liability structures can extend out 75 years. You know, Canada Pension Plan will tell you that they're investing over a 75-year time horizon. Well, so if you're hoping Mm -hmm. to take climate change seriously, um, and the science is very clear, we should be taking it seriously. There's not a lot of debate about the five different climate models and what it's telling us about the trajectory of um, the climate. But it gets more and more pronounced the longer and longer you look out. And so for me, I'm trying to find ways to help those long-term investors integrate that climate signal into their decision-making because they are the ones that will suffer from the kind of ramifications of climate change. You know, properties will become worth less, 
certain properties will be uninsurable. Certain companies will have, you know, maybe there'll be a price on carbon. You know, who knows? There's all kinds of interesting things that will come from this. But at the high level, these long-term investors should be interested in climate change. You know, mm-hmm. at, a, at a far enough distance, climate change is a commercial risk. They just need to look, you know, 10, 15 years out. It's totally a financial risk at that point. You know, mm-hmm. it's a financial risk today. If you look at California fires, if you look at the Australian fires, you know, there's there's tons of catastrophic damage occurring because of climate change already, but it's only going to get worse. Yeah, and I've noticed certain roles and job op- job openings coming online as far as someone heading up just the ESG specific part on the portfolio. And then when you look at um, maybe as a portfolio manager, maybe as a a different kind of role. Um, And then when you can look at certain risk analysis software where they try to peer through to individual holdings and find out how much exposure to certain uh, industries there are, but is that something obviously that's it's going to keep continuing, or do you think that there's this obviously there's the other side where it's this pushback of missing out on upside of investment return is usually the way I see it framed, or or just other yeah. political interests or other types of interests? Yeah, well, you know, if you're a short term intermediary and most of the world's asset managers and finance professionals are thinking in the relative short term, you know, one year, one quarter, if you're lucky, three years, but that's very rare, you know, climate change really isn't a factor. So it's not surprising that the people whose job it is to manage money and guide capital flows would say to us, look, pay no attention to the, you know, this big problem, um, pull a Jedi mind trick on the pension funds, because for them, it's a distraction. You know, they're focused on the one to three year performance. And so, yeah, we may get a pandemic every, you know, 15 years. By the way, this is our third pandemic. We had SARS, we had Zika, and now we have COVID. Um, so it's actually much more often than you'd expect these tail risks. But, um, you know, the, the short-term intermediaries would like to say, look, don't pay attention to this stuff. It's not financial. It's not commercial because it's not of interest to us. And they would love for that core expertise to remain with them. But if you're a long-term investor, you need innovation around the long-term. You need to start thinking about what is the effect of this risk, this climate risk, this social and governance risks on value creation. And if it's not about alpha, then maybe it's about resiliency. Maybe it's about downside protection. There needs to be far more research around that notion of resiliency over time and sustainable growth rather than short-term, you know, alpha generation. And and so I, you know, I totally reject the notion that like taking these risks into consideration is a path to making less money. That's crazy. Like literally, we're just trying to build a more holistic and rich understanding of the things we're buying and holding. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Like you should be able to like say, hey, we're buying this building. Um, In seven years, it might not be insurable because of wildfire. Shouldn't we know that? You know, like maybe we should. But, you know, the performance of this building is going to be sick for the next two years. Well, you can do what you want with the information. You can choose to buy the building and hold it for two years and then sell it before it's uninsurable. Fine. But like at least we need to give all the investors 
the capacity to make these decisions and understand what the route is rather than just saying, look, the route ends at two years out and we'll figure it out after it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, it goes along with some of the short-term thinking and investment performance in general. I think you can kind of lump some of those ideas in where if a manager is underperforming, like you said, it's it's shorter and shorter time frames now where really it, it should be measured over maybe five to 10 years, almost a decade, not maybe three years or even five yeah. or, even, or, or even one to two years before a manager gets fired. Um, and so I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, when you look at the long-term kind of nature of some of these pools of capital, you would think that that would be the exact goal of maximizing, not even for for, dec- for a couple decades, but, you know, talking about a century into the future, long, long time of time kind of time horizons. And when you look at the makeup of the portfolios, kind of the, uh, the Swenson portfolio going back to kind of that endowment model and, and using the uh, a mix of, of more private holdings, let's say mm-hmm. private assets. Um, do you, you know, what's your thought on, on kind of that, the endowment model as it stands now and where it's going and, you know, where it's been and where it's going, kind of grouping that into the conversation you just talked about with the ESG. Mm-hmm. So, I have like some conflicted views on the endowment model. I think when it's practiced really well, it's amazing. You know, the, Mm -hmm. the, the true endowment model as it's been explained to me is not just about privates or alternatives. It's Mm -hmm. about identifying managers that have some niche skill, Mm -hmm. um, some niche approach and getting deep alignment with those managers and empowering them to go do amazing things. What I what I feel like gets lost from the equation today is the deep alignment part. You know, I'm I'm guessing if you go talk to Swenson or Wallace at Stanford, they'll tell you we want fewer managers, we want deeper relationships, we want to mm-hmm. underwrite their businesses, and and we don't want 300 GPs, we want 50. And we want to be able to really align interests, keep fees low where possible. Unfortunately, over time, the endowment model has become, you know, fee agnostic um, and widely diversified across a range of alternatives. If you are widely diversified, you don't have much negotiating power. You don't really have a deep understanding of the managers you're backing. And so you're missing that alignment of interest and that ability to go deeper with managers in a crisis. And more than that, to have influence over your managers and convince them to take ESG seriously. Today, the the endowments, they're fully outsourced. They rely on general partners. And those general partners have often flipped the tables on the limited partners using scarcity and capacity as a way of limiting the influence of their limited partners over their behavior. So a limited partner who wants to go you know, invest in one of the top venture funds in Silicon Valley, like has no chance to dictate terms. They're just lucky to get capacity. And that's the game that gets played across the entire alternative space. Like you're just lucky to get a a slot in my fund. Well, that's a perversion of the principal agent relationship, whereby the principal holds the agent accountable. And 
the agent is basically holding the principal accountable. And so how does the principal tell the agent to take environmental issues seriously when the agent is the shorter horizon investor and holds all the cards? Oh, but some people say, no, 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 no. Venture capital is long-term and private equity is long-term. Not really. They're raising their next fund two to three years after their last fund, which means that the investments made in the first year and a half of the fund have to show markups and have to be looking good in order to start raising the next fund. And so they may have a 14-year life cycle, but the behavior is still short-term. And so for us to really get ESG to flow through into those managers, kind of have to change that dynamic and go back to the more pure form of the endowment model where you're getting deep alignment and you're getting true partnership and you're pushing managers that you have some influence over to take this stuff more seriously. Right. And do you have any thoughts on the, looking at the website here, the um, richmond.edu with spider management, where they kind of created this hybrid model of servicing other outside entities, or do you have any, any uh, thoughts on just kind of the governance of some of these, the way they set up these boards in general? So, is that one of these, uh, is Richmond like they're managing other endowment capital or? You just right. Saying, yeah. Right. So it's, it's kind of like we've built our capacity and now we're going to allow others to kind of piggyback on the capacity. Kind of like a, a family a, office for cost, re- cost recovery. <laughs> for endowments. It yeah. makes sense, right? Because certain organizations are going to build really deep expertise in certain ways. Like, um, like QIC out of Australia has an incredible real estate and infrastructure team and they've spent a lot of time building it. And why wouldn't they then, you know, help to cover some of the costs of that expensive program by bringing other capital in? I can understand that. And and in fact, I almost think there's a model in the future where certain asset owner investors build out really amazing capabilities and different things. And then they manage each other's money. You know, some Canadian pension plan managing some other fund's money for private equity. I don't know. They're building these Ferraris and they need gas money, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I've read a little bit about sometimes they call it the Canadian model where they pay more for uh, salaries kind of in-house. And it seems like that's changed a little bit from the news stories and from some of the pay scale increases that I've seen, maybe not that much here in the States, but do you have any thoughts on that as far as the argument of, okay, well, you have to pay more for that investment talent totally. um, and pay, pay higher salaries to compete with private sector. Has there been any movement on retraction in that area? It's starting. It's starting. I mean, for the long time in the U.S., we benchmarked our pension staff to other government employees rather than benchmarking our pension staff to other investment and finance employees. Right. And that left the pension funds at a huge disadvantage relative to the asset managers. Like literally, it's been a wonderful gift to the asset management community to under-resource, underpay, understaff pension funds. Because it means the pension funds are more reliant on these high-cost intermediaries. You know, I did a bunch of projects in Canada, and our, you know, back of the envelope calculation was it costs about ten percent 
to run an identical investment program internal to a Canadian pension plan as it does to run it external through a GP, especially in e-liquid assets I'm talking about, like private equity, infrastructure, real estate. And so you don't even need to get anywhere near the same gross return to get a better net return if you Mm -hmm. can save that much. Um, And so that was part of the logic that drove many of the Canadian plans to you know, ramp internal compensation and, and try to build up these teams. I mean, it's a, there's trade-offs there. You lose some flexibility, um, you change the culture, but at a high level, like you're building an investment organization that can compete in a global marketplace. Um, the plans here haven't quite figured out if they're social welfare organizations or they're the base of our capitalist system. They're mm-hmm. both but they haven't quite figured out how to manage that identity. The Canadians have managed that identity a little bit better. The Australians are doing a great job of it. Um, Too often the plans here feel more like they've chosen to hang on to that government bureaucracy rather than embrace the fact that they are negotiating with the slickest hedge funds and private equity funds and venture funds on earth. Um, and so I think, you know, for us to really improve our pension landscape, we're just going to have to start paying our pension staff what we pay our football coaches, you know. The football coaches are always right. the highest paid <laughs> state employees, you know, going right. around the, the U.S. It's always football coaches and then some doctors. And then near the bottom, you'll have like pension staff. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and do you have any thoughts, or I guess just more general thoughts on some of the underfunded liabilities? I know it's quite a complex topic to kind of dive into, um, but do you have any general thoughts there as far um, as <laughs> what's, we're in so what's, much trouble. what's happening? We're yeah. in so much trouble. We need to say, we need, first off, like there's three things we can do as a society we can save more money. We can delay retirement, which is another way of saying cut benefits, or we can make more money in our investing. Mm-hmm. That's it. Those are the only options. And with interest rates going down, that liability just got bigger. So, and Bo, by the way, asset performance, like it's not doing great right now either. So, like, we're in a really tough spot. And as a country, we're not willing to mandate savings like they do in Australia. And it's politically toxic to cut benefits and delay retirement. And so we have traditionally relied on investing our way out of this crisis. You know, more hedge funds, more private equity, more venture. And the actuaries then turn around and say, oh, you're investing in these risky things. That means you're going to make more money. We can use that expected return to discount our liabilities. And lo and behold, the magic of um, actuarial accounting, uh, the liabilities don't look as big, but it's all, you know, magic time. It's like math magic, we call it. It's not real. We have a huge burden coming and there's going to be some painful decisions that need to be made in, you know, Illinois in particular, but other, other places where underfunding is getting to the point where bailouts are probably required. And, uh, yeah, 
Yeah, and I know you've talked a lot about this in the past and uh, through your articles and your research, and there's been other people that have been talking about this for a long time. And I read a couple of op-eds or opinion pieces in P&I. This was going back for a few years. And I know Warren Buffett cited this in his kind of famous annual letter several years ago, at least. I can't remember exactly when it was, but this has been talked about, but it just kind of keeps being pushed aside, it seems like. Do you think that there's going to be, obviously, you mentioned Illinois, and there's been a a couple other states we saw in in Texas. I think it was the Dallas, uh, more local police department having some issues. Do you think that there's going to be, and so far it looks like courts have kind of ruled that (laughs) – these promises need to be kept so far for the most part from what I've read at least. And so do you think that, you know, now there's people talking about, okay, the fed or federal government will have to basically kind of step in and lend to individual States. Do you think that's where this is headed? I know that's a complete uh, um, speculation kind of thing, but is that, is that where this, that might have to go? Look, it's scary. I, I mean, I don't know how we don't end up, with a uh, gosh, a grand bargain mm-hmm. out there in the next ten years that includes all different sides coming to the table, yeah, um, and and it'll probably have to be the feds that lead it. You know, the federal government leading a grand bargain between states and retirees and employers and pensioners, and you know, the young people are really getting the shaft here because we're, we're going to spend so much of our tax revenue funding the retirements of, of today's retirees. And what are we going to do for the young people who don't have the luxury of those defined benefit pension plans that were, you know, the Cadillac back when Cadillacs were rad, the Cadillac plan. (laughs) Right. Um, That's what they, you know, we used to call it Cadillacs and then people are like, is that a bad plan? And you're like, no, actually that was the good plan, but (laughs) that's how, that's how dated they are. Um, that's funny. So, although I guess Cadillacs are rad again, I don't know, but they uh, we're going to have to do something, and it's going to be painful for a lot of parties. I mean, when we made these plans and we were sort of committing to paying from retirement to death, I don't think anybody could have thought, you know, nanobots might be able to like rebuild people's kidneys and fix diabetes, right? And that people are going to live to ninety. You know, if you go back to Otto von Bismarck and like the notion of the pension plan that came out of that um, that time period, it was like retire at sixty five, die at sixty seven. You know, that's a very different profile than teachers or firemen or police officers retiring at forty five, fifty for some of those really dangerous jobs, and then living to eighty five, ninety. It's just there's there's no math that makes that work. There's no investment return that can make that work. So something's got to give. And uh, I don't know what it is. Like, I, I mean, I, I I look at it and it's like save more, cut benefits or increase investment performance. Right. Those are it. So where do we solve that problem? It's probably, sadly, delay retirement. That's right. probably what it's going to be. Right. And as you mentioned, everything kind of prices from that 10-year note. And when you look at rates where they are, and then you know look at the upside for fixed income, and then the upside for equity, you can kind of price out 
where returns might be headed. Obviously, you have research affiliates and GMO and, and look at their kind of seven-year projections. And and some of those have actually been off a little bit, some criticism. But I think even more of the case of looking at it now yeah. um, going forward. Of, and we talk a lot about on the, on the podcast about where just the global growth is going to come from. So you have mm. Japan and and, and and then obviously probably near the worst in Europe, Spain, Italy, and then you have you know the U.S. We're doing okay in China, and you look at India as being you know a, a future growth engine of the world, and and parts of China possibly, even though there's some issues there. But it's hard to see where the growth of the past is going to come from. But on the other side of the coin, you you know you're we stay optimistic and say okay, we could have that next industrial revolution or whatever that might be in the sense of kind of technology um but it's it's hard to see where that and how that might happen but it's it's possible i suppose um, yeah so you hard know to trend, hard transitioning to, to some of the work that you've been doing with the long game app yeah sure you know i'd like to just kind of set this up as i've used the app and i've really enjoyed using it and um and just kind of the nature of it being like i don't want to say addictive but just habit forming and like really fun to use and like making it making the game gamification piece really exciting i was really kind of pleasantly surprised with that and um i actually heard you talk about it on the meb faber show a little bit but i would like to kind of talk about it in the context of where um we are with the economy right now and where kind of the middle class and maybe people even on a lower income are right now. And especially with what we're going through right now with the coronavirus and how that's really could drive a lot more people to, to using the app. Um, yeah. So, you know, let's talk about it. Sure. Well, it's funny. We, we really launched long game for this type of crisis where, yeah, you know the the idea is we were trying to help build a rainy day fund for an, an entire generation of Americans that didn't have such a thing. You know, like when it rains, like rather than reaching for your credit card, like imagine you had enough money to like you know pay the auto mechanic or pay the medical bill in a savings fund, and and that was the goal. And we decided that um, that can be a great goal, but we need like some unique way of making that happen because, you know, the data is pretty, pretty negative. It's like most Americans aren't saving. Right. And, uh, and so we decided to try, and this is a shocking word associated with finance, but we decided to try and make it fun. And, you know, Lindsay and I co-founded the company and we, we set out to use this notion of prize link savings and gamification in order to create an, you know, an app, a financial app, a, a savings app that was like something you actually wanted to open and engage with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Our hypothesis was that unlike other apps that kind of promise uh, set it and forget it or trust us type of mentality um, or product, we wanted to engage young people, people in their 20s, 30s, even earlier um, in their financial lives. And so we, we built this platform that has all these really great games. The more money you save, the more chances you get to play those games, you can actually win real money, you know, and it's like all of that behavioral and psychology 
that underpins the the app is about getting you focused on constructive financial outcomes, behaviors and outcomes. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I think we've seen with the crisis that like uh, we've had drawdowns that are as big or bigger than we see around Christmas time. So people are using that rainy day fund, which is really, really kind of rewarding. And, um, you know, we're just hopeful that the company, you know, comes out of this crisis strong and that we can continue to help all these young people get on top of their finances. That's really, you know, that's really been the mission from the beginning. Yeah. And is there, what's the precedent for these type of, uh, the the way these type of savings, the prize link savings accounts are set up. Um, so I'm seeing online that there's some information on Wikipedia and shows some history. But is there is this something that you had to research, or is this something that you already had studied in the past? It's not a new concept. It goes back almost 300 years um, to the UK. And prize bonds and and trying to incentivize people to um, save money, but also to save money in certain instruments that that was like literally used to fund wars in Europe between uh, France and England. Um, so so there's been lots of experiments. I think what was happening um, around the time we were setting up the company, the U.S. Congress had passed the American Savings and Promotion Act, which basically legalized prize link savings in 50 states. So the federal mandate to allow prize link savings. That was the first like, oh, crap, we can really do this. Like up until then, you would think to yourself, there's there's ways we can do it. Um, but is it you know supported or is it encouraged? Hard to know. Well, with the passing of that, you know that, you know, mm-hmm. at the very least, the Congress and the president are supportive, encouraging of project link savings. Perfect. So but we took that um, and we launched the company. Um, and then in terms of like our take on prize link savings, that was pretty unique. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the PLS stuff is kind of like just a lottery. It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so we took a lot of that mechanic of prize link savings um, and we've tried to bring mm-hmm. it into a whole bunch of other games that have the same kind of like, look, it's luck based and um, it's not gambling because your principle is always preserved. You're never playing with your principle. You're just playing with the kind of interest. And, uh, and so we've tried to be incredibly creative with how we apply it and then pulling in a lot of like killer game designers and mobile app developers to, to sort of present something that's fresh and new um to this generation yeah i was i've been involved with the startup developing an app so i know what goes into it so i was really impressed with the designers and also the developers that you used yeah uh, because there's a lot going on in that app as far as just the games and and clicking and doing a lot all at once and it's it functions really smooth and goes remarkably fast for what's going on behind the scenes so uh, that's super interesting. Yeah. And then when you actually look at the um, like how the prizes are paid out, is, does it do you have to use some type of insurance for these type of payouts, like a Lloyd's yeah, London or something like that? Or yeah. how, how does that piece work? I always wondered. 
Yeah, that we ensure the million dollar prize, and I think the okay. hundred, the hundred thousand dollar prize, and then we self insure the fifty k, ten k, and below. I think that's what it is. It might have changed, but but I think that's what we insure. So we're rooting like every week. We're rooting for people to win the million. Like we would love for that to happen. Um, you know, it's about one in two hundred million odds that you win the million, which is better, which <laughs> right. is better than the lottery, honestly. But but still, it's a pretty long shot. Um, so we ensure that, and it's random number generator. It's like third party audit, so it's all legit. Um, it all is run through um, SCA promotions, and uh, and it's awesome. It's a great program. So that's how we do that. And, you know, the same type of logic for that million is applied across the different games and, and gameplay. Interesting. Yeah. I always wondered how that worked, but that, that makes a lot of sense. So then obviously you, you guys are rooting for, you know, the customers and the users to be able to win. And as you talked about, you know, this particular way of doing things, it makes a lot more sense than the way the lotto works right now. Um, is there any type of like next step where uh, consumers could be able to invest in kind of like a dollar cost averaging? I know there, there are robo advisors and yeah. there's other products out there, but is there kind of that next step? Obviously, having it in a savings account makes a lot of sense because it's a rainy day fund and they, you know, maybe you earn a little bit, in, bit of interest, but the most important thing is it's that it's there and it's safe. Yeah. But is there any plans or thoughts on opening that up to to uh Investment. investments that, yeah right that maybe on a longer term time horizon yeah exactly i mean when we went back to setting the company up you know four years ago or whatever it was we had an ambition to help people save for retirement which would imply yeah. you know let's define your time horizon and then help you design a portfolio that takes appropriate risk and has commensurate return but as we jumped into the lives of these young people, we realized they've got a lot of debt and there's a lot of challenges in terms of just getting out of debt and getting things paid down. And we, so we, we wanted to meet our user base where they were. And so rather than build a bunch of you know, investment products right up front, we decided to go the route we did. I think now that we're up you know, in the hundreds of thousands of users and um, we've got a lot of different account profiles, there's a lot more appetite. Uh, to do investment products. So it's on the roadmap. I can't quite say when, um, but it's it's out there. Yeah, and obviously you have the debit card. So to me, what was the most interesting thing is just the gamification piece, how it's really you know giving you that nudge and pushing you in a way where maybe you don't know it or it's more subconscious or maybe you actually do see it and you're like yeah. wow I'm actually behaving changing my behavior but it's really exciting to watch you know the the credits build up and maybe you earn only a few pennies on the little games or and sometimes you can earn more as you said mm. but it's really empowering and rewarding for people I think to actually be playing like a real life game and and watching their savings build up rather than having something more opaque or it's okay you're just you're depositing 5 bucks a month or wherever yeah. and you don't see it but it's it's missing that that exciting element of checking in and having that gamification so yeah. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate um, that. I thought that was really interesting. Gonna, yeah. But uh, yeah. it's a great project. But yeah. But just in cl- but just in closing, to k- kind of tying this stuff together, 
you know, where we are, we're recording here on Friday, April 17th. So we're about a little over, I think, 30 days into the quarantine. So mm. we're, we're kind of you know, seeing as to what might happen next and where this might go. But do you have any general thoughts on, on you know, what's happening in your world and your research and, and going forward into this kind of new you know, world we're going in at all. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's a lot of remote work. It's zoom calls. And yeah, I've, I've seen some articles where they're having some issues as far as traders make doing market making from home and things like that. But yeah, I know there's probably issues in the pension space that have, that have come up as far as trustees and certain rules that are on the books. But, um, any yeah, thoughts there? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think like, continuity business continuity planning is taking on an entire new perspective and you know everybody (laughs) spent the first two weeks trying to make sure that portfolios were secure and um safely being invested and that you know everything was working and i think at this point you know i don't hear any grumbles anymore i don't hear anybody is fighting fires it's more about you know ensuring the portfolios um doing what it needs to do and so it's a big shock, obviously, and everybody's trying to figure out what it, what it means in terms of the future. But I think in the present, uh, the organizations have responded really well. And like you say, there's a lot of different tools and technologies that allow for much easier management of this type of crisis. So um, we'll have to see. Yeah, and I'm going to link your uh, some of these links in the show notes here, your Twitter handle and the uh, the link to the Long Game app. But why don't you tell listeners where they can find uh, you and read some more of your work and research? Yeah, sure. So, um, gosh, uh, Sovereign Fund is my is my Twitter handle, and I'm just publishing a new book on April 21st called The Technologized Investor, Stanford Press, with Dr. Dane Rook. And uh, you can probably also, um, you know, just go to our our webpage at Stanford, um, search the Global Project Center in Stanford, and you'll find it. Thanks for having me on. We'll uh, we'll link all those uh, in the show notes and uh, really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.